The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Hello again, and welcome to the 18th episode of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 8th of July, and in this podcast, you will find out more about the latest updates on the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, the resignation of British Prime Minister Johnson, the European Parliament's vote on renewable energies, and the Czech Republic's mandate for presidency of the Council of the European Union. As always, we will present you with the best editorials and opinion pieces on the inflation and its effects on the purchasing power of wages, and climate change and the ecological transition. And now let's dive right into the most important news of the week. The first news of the day concerns the war between Russia and Ukraine. The Donbass in eastern Ukraine continues to be the main theater of conflict. In particular, this week the Russians captured the city of Lysychansk. Meanwhile, according to data from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, more than 4.8 million people have fled Ukraine since the conflict began last February 24th. From Ukraine, we now go to the other side of Europe and more specifically to the United Kingdom. It is yesterday's news that Prime Minister Boris Johnson has resigned as leader of the Conservative Party, the Tories, which currently leads the country. His resignation as party leader will be followed by his resignation as Prime Minister as soon as his party identifies a replacement. Let us now turn to matters strictly related to the European Union. This week, the European Parliament rejected a resolution proposing to exclude investments in gas and nuclear energy and not to consider them as sustainable energies. The regulation on the environmental sustainability of economic activities will therefore continue to include gas and nuclear as long as we are in the transition phase to completely clean energy. New gas and nuclear power plants will be eligible for funding, albeit for a limited period of time and only when such plants replace coal-fired power plants. Voting to consider gas and nuclear as sustainable energies were the European People's Party, the Identity and Democracy Party, the Party of European Conservatives and Reformists and Renew Europe, a coalition of which the European Democratic Party is also a member. On the issue, the Secretary-General of the European Democratic Party, Sandro Gozzi, tweeted... The European Parliament validates a taxonomy that integrates nuclear and gas, under certain conditions, as transitional energies. This is a responsible decision to pursue our climate goals and achieve energy independence. Now we move on to the handover of the presidency of the Council of the European Union. This week, the Czech Republic began its six-month term as president of the Council of the European Union, taking over the post that has been France's for the past six months. In outlining his program, Czech Prime Minister Peter Fiala stated that he wanted to focus on the Ukrainian issue. Specifically, the program has as its goals containing the refugee crisis, beginning post-conflict reconstruction, strengthening energy security, common defense capabilities, and EU economic crisis resilience. For the last update, we now return to issues affecting individual states to talk about what happened in Italy. In the northeast of the country, the detachment of the Marmolada glacier caused the death of nine people. 
Seven more are injured and three are missing. These are provisional numbers, however, as rescue operations are still underway. The first series of opinion pieces of the day focuses on the topic of inflation and its effects on the purchasing power of wages. The first editorial comes from the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera. For Dario Di Vico, we are faced with a different kind of inflation linked to the protracted armed conflict in Eastern Europe. In Italy, political parties seem to agree on the importance of reducing the tax wedge, a solution that would have the merit of increasing the value of work and putting more resources in people's wallets. It is now up to the government to technically evaluate this hypothesis and study its compatibility with the more general choices of economic policy and debt containment. In the meantime, reads the article, all one-time solutions or bonuses for employees should be encouraged. At the same time, however, the social partner should work with the government to renew national collective work contracts that have expired and are waiting to be renegotiated. Solutions of this kind, Devico concludes, would provide concrete answers to workers, stimulate a more constructive debate, and ward off the risk that to the political crisis we add popular distrust. Today's second commentary takes us across the Alps and to the French newspaper Les Echos. Emmanuel Combe, an economics professor at Schema Business School, lists some economic principles for increasing the purchasing power of wages. In the short term, Combe maintains, target only those who really need it, therefore taking specific measures targeted at those most in need. Then, avoid locking in prices, as it would create a disincentive effect on supply. To limit prices, the professor argues, it would be wiser to stimulate competition in the market, encouraging consumer information and mobility and combating anti-competitive practices. Finally, invest more in education and human capital. According to a study cited by Combe, as the level of education increases, so does the level of wages. Faced with inflation that is bound to last, the editorial explains in closing, purchasing power policy must combine short-term support measures with long-term investments in education. The latest editorial on the subject takes us across the channel and onto the British newspaper The Guardian. According to Stephanie Brabe, founder and director of the consulting firm Good Ancestor Movement, the British economic system is designed to perpetuate wealth inequality. On one hand, families will face a cost-of-living tsunami, with food prices rising by as much as 50%, while concurrently, billionaires' wealth has soared over the past year. Economic gains are concentrated among a very small proportion of the population, argues Brobe. The columnist then goes on to explain how political choices have been made to avoid redistributing these gains more equitably. If we want to prevent economic differences from turning into social unrest, there is an urgent need to redesign our tax system so that it taxes wealth more effectively and make it so that those with more resources contribute more. Choices around how we raise revenue are political, the columnist concludes, and the most equitable way of redistributing wealth is through a fair system of progressive taxation. 
With the second round of opinions from around the world, let's change the subject and talk about climate change and green energy. The first editorial on the matter comes from Belgium and from the newspaper La Libre. For journalist Vincent Slitz, the European Parliament's vote to recognize investments in gas and nuclear power as green and compatible with the transition phase to completely clean energy is a missed opportunity. However, the Belgian columnist argues that the decision was a result of pragmatic reasoning. Europe will still need gas and nuclear for quite some time, Slitz explains. Despite the development of renewable energies and the investments put in place to improve our energy efficiency, these will not be sufficient in the medium term to guarantee the energy transition. In conclusion, however, according to the columnist, the EU has missed an important opportunity to consolidate its climate momentum and establish itself as an international reference through a credible and ambitious classification of what is and what is not sustainable. With the next editorial, we move to Central Europe, and more specifically to Germany, to the Süddeutsche Zeitung newspaper. According to Benjamin von Brackel, the Marmolada glacier tragedy forces us to reconsider our relationship with nature itself. In order to avoid such tragedies, monitoring of glaciers could be expanded to assess the risk of detachment. But even in countries where monitoring is widespread, such as Switzerland, this is not enough. Indeed, in the Alpine country last May, the detachment of parts of a glacier killed two people and injured nine. As glaciers retreat, avalanches and rockfalls are on the rise, and predicting them becomes difficult, von Brackel explains. The Marmolada accident clearly shows how unpredictable the situation has become, and this unpredictability extends to all weather phenomena. Rain becomes flooding, Hot days bring deadly heat waves. If there is one lesson to be learned from the Marmolada avalanche, the journalist concludes, it is to teach respect for nature. Today's final editorial takes us instead to Southern Europe and to the Spanish newspaper El País. A heat wave in June in France, vast forest fires in Spain, drought in Italy and Portugal. For the Spanish paper's columnists, these extreme phenomena are just a taste of what will happen in the coming decades, even in the most optimistic outlook. And these phenomena, in three out of four cases, affect southern European countries, while Scandinavian countries might actually enjoy slight benefits due to climate change. Climate change then not only brings with it unpredictable extreme phenomena, but could also create a climate divide, that will increase political tensions between northern and southern European countries. To deal with these phenomena and limit further damage to the ecosystem, the Spanish journalists propose integrating environmental policies into all EU decisions and pooling the resources of different countries. Also, creating a protection mechanism against major disasters, but whose funds are tied to compliance with national environmental commitments. Despite all that is happening in the world, the columnists conclude, Europeans cannot afford to lose sight of the generational importance of climate change. We are at the end of the 18th episode of the podcast, The Window on the World. Before leaving you, however, we want to remind you that next week, there will be a meeting of the finance ministers of the Eurozone countries. But on this and other international issues, we will update you next week. Research and writing for this episode was done by Daniel Ruzza and behind the mic 
it's me, your host, Gail Rago. I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care and goodbye.